And sitting beside me, Daryl Pace, my brother, from a very, very snowy Scotland, but not as snowy as it was a week ago, because there was a couple of days where uh, it was actually almost not possible to get to our office or our houses back from the our country office by did, the end of the day. The country did melt down. If uh, anyone was watching the news uh, out with the UK, you would actually think the apocalypse had happened. They um, might be laughing at us. They, the, 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 shell, the, the, the people from Alaska listen to this show. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not even joking, right? So the snow was... I would say bad in regions and particularly bad in some of the places we lived. And it was actually the drifts rather than the depth of the snow that was the problem. So some of the drifts were 12, 15 foot tall and blowing across the road so you couldn't see or you couldn't get past them. Uh, But actually laying on the ground must have been an inch, if that. Uh, Some places were a bit more than that. Some places had six inches. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, where around where we live. Yeah, where where we live. Where we live. And from that one inch on the ground and the bit of drifting... We ran out of fuel in the entire region. Bread. We ran out of bread. We ran out of milk. The shelves were empty. There was no fruit or veg. And honestly, th- this it was like the end of days. It does make me a little concerned because it, it was and only... gas. The country was running out we, of we gas. We were, yeah. It was, it was probably only about a week of kind of bad weather. One week, everything ground to a halt. What on earth would we do if there was actually a proper disaster? This isn't a disaster. This is just a fluctuation in winter weather. We do get snow here, but not quite normally quite that much. It's the most I can remember for probably about 15 years. And the amount of pillocks on the road in in cars, you know, you pillock might need um, uh, <laughs> might need translated for American listeners. Idiot. Idiot. I don't know. Idiot yeah. uh, on the road just thinking that like I, I was thinking twice in a four-wheel drive. Barnes got a Land Rover Defender as well, and he wasn't making up certain places. And we were thinking about, you know, this is actually quite serious. But we were prepared. I had tow ropes. I had uh, those things you can lay on the ground for more grip. I've got, um, I've got spades, buckets, everything in my car. So I'm fairly prepared. And then you've got someone like in the Ford car trying to get up the same road as you, and they're surprised why they can't make it. Well, I, I actually have a request. A- and no no tyres on. I've got off-roading tyres. Yeah. You've got off-roading tyres. But I, no, I've got, I've got a more important request than that. If you're a listener and you drive a BMW or any rear-wheel-driven car... Not all, it, all, not, not all BMWs are rear-wheel-driven anymore. No, they're not. But they're, so uh, some most wheel drive, yeah, most So are. any rear-wheel-driven car... Please don't go out in the snow. Mazda MX-5 as well. It is you that causes the problems because you get stuck and then no one can get you past you. I saw this about maybe like two months ago and it was literally a flurry of snow. Just like a little twinkling down of snow one morning just for a few hours and I was down over in Fife. Every time I got stuck in traffic, it took me like three hours to get home instead of an hour. It was because someone in a rear-wheel driven car had thought it was a great idea to drive their vehicle out. Even though I saw some someone come out of their driveway, they struggled to get out and they struggled all the way up the 20-meter slope, sk- skidding around their back end, fishtailing, and they still thought it was a good idea to go out. 
uh, the, have some sort of the, consideration. I think this this point was definitely proven as when I was delayed by about five hours in Glencoe in pretty bad weather, but I was in my four-wheel drive, I was happy, heated seats on, the lot, and my delay, a freaking BMW had come off the road and the police had closed <laughs> the road, and the thing that annoyed me the most, the people weren't even hurt and the BMW wasn't still on the road, yet they still closed it, and that annoyed me It a wasn't lot. on the road? No, as far as I'm concerned, in this country, and in fact in any country in the world, if the people in the car are not seriously hurt, the police have a bulldozer and they just move off the road and get the traffic flowing because the bottom line is is that you're delaying people's lives. And and in fact, sometimes I think in some cases, if it's the person's fault, they bulldoze it with the person in it. <laughs> and then deal with them after. Caveat, we don't condone uh, personal injury to <laughs> necessarily. Okay, so uh, that out the way. Sorry, we're talking about snowy weather. We are. Uh, also, if you have made any orders from our shop, uh, please be patient uh, because of the amount of snow and the country grinding to a halt. There might be a small delay, so when we say that something might be a few days late, we mean it might be a few days late because the post hasn't been picked up for almost a week. Yeah, uh, that, that was actually literally... It wasn't that we we actually... We went to the post office. It's not very far from us, the post office, so we could always get to it. But the the first day when this this kind of snow got bad, they said, Wednesday, yeah, yeah, they said, oh, we're not actually picking up today. And then the snow got worse. So I actually don't think they picked up post from our post office until the Monday after. Yeah. So like four or five days. So there is a massive and backlog. And you can think of the massive backlog throughout the whole country. But anyway, so if you did order from us, please be patient. And if you have, if you order during the bad weather and you haven't received your, your items within two weeks or something, then please let us know, and we will sort it out for you. Yeah, no, we definitely uh, but will. But you just need to be a little bit patient because it's kind of um, out with our control. It is. So, um, winner from two weeks ago. We asked you to post a picture which showed uh, eating local. Eating in the great outdoors, eating local. Uh, we had some great entries, and the winner is Tom Bernard Y. Well done. So, congratulations. Great pick. Uh, you won a set of Smith Optics shooting glasses. So those will be on the way out to you. Just send us over your details. And we have a, another competition coming up for this show, which is to win a vintage Hornady reloading sign. I've lost count of the amount of these we've given away. And it's always one of our most popular entries. People seem to want the vintage yeah. tin signs. Have you thought about how we're going to... Um, put this competition up yet, Dale? I have not. I'm actually just trying to scroll through my emails right now because I just rem- remembered that there was an amazing You wanted email, to read one out? Okay, well, I'll, through, I'll work this out while you're uh, trying to find the email. I know the one that you're talking about. We've actually had... Uh, well, actually... Um, okay, let me... I need to give you one bit of information before I give you another because it's just prompted me for another message we got yesterday. If you want to win the Hornady Vintage Reloading Sign, then... We will let's make we're going to make another picture competition because although we did it two weeks ago, we haven't done we hadn't done it for quite a quite a period of time. So the picture competition this week is going to be a picture that shows your best you or your best friend out in the great outdoors. Doesn't have to be a person; could be your dog. We love a dog picture. So your best friend. In the great outdoors. Uh, and it's not exclusive to people in the UK. Anyone can enter around the world. Uh, we haven't actually... Tom's not from the UK. No, is he not? No, I think he lives in Denmark. Oh, okay, well, there we go. I was just going to say, yeah. we've not had a winner from outside the UK for a while, but there you go, we just we just have. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to flick through these emails for ages because I can't well, I can, remember I'll, where You can carry on looking because I'll, I'll um, tell another story. Just um, Unfortunately, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but um, and I don't have my phone on me, but... 
two days ago, we received uh, a message on Facebook uh, from a chap who had, I think he listens to the podcast and he, he's certainly been watching the various films and stuff that we, we put out uh, through our production company. And he took the time to message us just to say that by watching the films and listening to and, and reading the stuff that we've written, he had literally changed his career he had completely changed his life from what he was doing before and he had just he was very proud because he'd just been accepted to one of the courses at gamekeeping college and uh, i'm not quite sure how old he is but he sort of looks sort of in his mid-30s maybe well i think um, he'd had a career in the military he had, he had a career before uh, and that was him he was changing his life he'd been accepted to gamekeeping college which he was very very pleased about and that is the career choice that he was making um so that's fantastic to have been able to touch somebody's life like that where they've made some choices off the back of all the conversations we have with all the great people that we, we interview and then the various films that we make. I'm not going to be able to find this email. The reason for it is there's about five emails that are really nice along the lines of Byron just said uh, we've had in the last like two weeks and I've had a lot of emails from uh, I need to find it. it is in there we'll somewhere. find it for the next show but this person I think the reason Daryl wanted to read it particularly is here was someone who wasn't involved in the hunting yeah. sort of fishing space and they had taken it up and applied for their fire or their shotgun or firearms they, they emailed us last week saying that due to the show they had applied for their I think it was shotgun, shotgun yeah. certificates which uh, is awesome yeah which is absolutely amazing and they felt part of our community um, welcome yes <laughs> welcome to you, it. you are very welcome everybody uh, is now for any new listeners because we get new listeners from uh, the states nearly every single week which is pretty cool so hello to everyone in the United States and hello to everyone else that's joined us um we have some really cool guests coming on in the next uh, few weeks the show is every two weeks on a Thursday typically sometimes there's some shows in between um, in the next show I believe we have Jim Shockey coming on we do we're going to be seeing him this weekend in a couple of days we're just yeah. about to pack up and go we've to, actually to got Ewa. we've actually got two podcasts with Jim Jim but yeah. I don't know how we're going to show them but well, the, the it, one's it, going to be very short so I think it'll probably be on the same show same so, yeah so this is going to be we're not too sure how the next uh, podcast is actually going to pan out how long it's going to be or anything because it's going to be really quickly edited in between us going from Germany up to the North Pole, basically, <laughs> uh, within one day. So we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, hopefully, Jim. Sh- well, it will be Jim Shockey will pr- more than likely be on the next show, yes. if not, definitely the other one after that. And then we've also got, um, but this will be in a couple of weeks' time uh, when we get back from the Arctic. Uh, is uh, Ben O'Brien's going to be on, and he is. Um, he recently was in a film in Nepal uh, through Yeti, which quite a few of you, I'm sure, have seen. And he has just recently started his own podcast called The Hunting Collective, which is rather excellent. So uh, we've been speaking to him and he is going to be coming on our podcast because he's a rather fascinating chap. Yeah, so some really cool podcasts to come up with. And there's going to be loads of surprises because we've got three days now in Nuremberg. In so, uh, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> we don't know who we're going to be end up speaking to. It's, it's, it's like the european version of shot show that's about the best comparison i can i can give it's the biggest um trade fair in europe yeah so it's yeah it's it was fantastic last so year a matter of people. hours of this going out we'll be on an airplane uh, on our way so make sure you check out our instagram uh because that's probably where most of the action is going to be going on uh, there'll be a few pictures on our facebook page but it's pace underscore brothers and we'll be doing some live videos and uh putting up pictures and loads of stuff on the Instagram as much as we can anyway um, we'll have a power bank with us because my phone lasts about five minutes but the beauty 
of the mobile phones now in Europe is that our phone works in Germany at no extra cost. Oh, is it free now? Completely free? Throughout the whole of Europe? No three quid a day charge. No three quid a day. So we can use all of our data, everything. And I've got 40 <laughs> gigs of, of bad boy data to use. And I've oh, not had a chance to use it yet. So. Tremendous. Uh, so yeah, so we will be doing live videos and showing off. And things. if you're there... If you are a listener who's listening to this on your which we, way today... We, which we do know yeah. that we have a number of listeners that live in Germany uh, who came to see us last year, um, who are coming to see us again this year because they've got um, car stickers to pick up. Uh, yeah, c- come and say hello to us. Look us up. Ping us a message on Instagram or Best, Facebook. We'll try and check during yeah. the day periodically and then we'll, we'll find a place to meet. Best thing to do is message us on Instagram. We do check our other, other folders. Hey, do you know what's really cool? Um, me and Martin were like flicking through our... Um, our, we're flicking through our Instagram the other day, and uh, we looked. We looked at Joe Rogan's uh, thing, and it oh, came, there was a reason why I was looking at Joe Rogan. Though it was because I had written, written an article, an article about, about it, and um, it was like follow back, and Joe Rogan follows us. He's got like 3.1 million people on his. Um, he doesn't follow that many people. He follows either. 1,600 people, yeah. and he's got 3.1 million people follow him. And he, oh, we're one of his followers, and we didn't even realize. So that's uh, that's our, our claim to fame this week, <laughs> Joe Rogan. <laughs> if you're listening, Joe Rogan, thank you very much. We love your stuff. Enjoyed writing the article about you and sharing and spreading the word of what you're about. Uh, so from that, well, you never know. Some point that is my one of my goals That'd for the next so twelve cool months to is to either be on Joe's show or to interview him. Or to interview I'd love him. to have him on the show because uh, well, he's currently doing his comedy um, tour. I think right now. I think we'd have to be in his locale yeah, so we could so. actually record a proper quality podcast rather than uh, like over yeah, Skype. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever heard him do anything yeah. other than in his studio. So uh, that that it is, it is our mission. We're going to try and make it happen. But we've got the next best thing. Maybe with your help, people. Maybe, yeah, maybe. if you message them and harass them enough, <laughs> um, and say, "Hey, Joe, get onto these guys." Because I tell you what, for for if if he invited us to the show, we would fly straight out to yeah, California. We'd do it without a shadow of a doubt. Hmm. So uh, yes, but. You're going to have to shelve that idea for the moment because we've got a new show for you this week. And we are bringing you an interview with Robbie Kroger. Now, I listened to a podcast uh, with Robbie some months back and I was like, this is a really interesting guy, really interesting story. And then life gets busy, didn't think anything else uh, about it. Then totally out of the blue, I get an email from Robbie. Uh, explaining what he's trying to do, which you're going to hear about this, the Blood Origins Project, which is the very first thing we talk about in this podcast. Uh, And then later on, you hear a little bit about his background. He has a fascinating job. We're going to get him back on the podcast to talk about that. Um, In the the wake of the BP oil spill, he's basically looking after the habitat and wildlife restoration. Uh, And so he explained to us what his project was about and basically wanted to have a conversation with us. And so I gave him a call back and said, you know, actually, Robbie, I've, I've heard your story and I was fascinated. And would you like to come on the podcast? He's like, yeah, man, that'd be cool. So he came on the podcast and it was a tremendous show. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed speaking to Robbie. And you will, as listeners, be hearing from him again. As I said, probably not the hunting side, but just what his day-to-day job is. is just We need to get into it more because to well, you you hear more about it, but he, he heads up the framework, which was the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon, mm. which we we talk about there, but th- that task must have, you must have not seen any horizon. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, so I know that you're going to enjoy this. Uh, do us a favor. 
after you finish listening to this podcast, please go leave us, leave us a review. It really, really does help, um, especially the more reviews we can get from different countries in the world. That really helps us in the rankings and helps us be found. Yeah. It does. Um, I think that is almost it because we have to jump on a plane very soon. We do, so we need to get this edited and out the door. Enjoy the show. Robbie, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We've been speaking for the last couple of weeks and I'm quite excited to have you on. It's uh, it's strange how the world works because I heard you on a podcast that we listen to a lot, the Journal of Mountain Hunting, quite a few months back and then you contacted us, although none of that was connected in any way. And now you're on our show, so I'm, I'm very excited for our listeners to hear a little bit about your story and the project that you're working on right now. Um, so... I think the best place to start is going to be, we're going to talk about Blood Origins because... Which is a brilliant name, by the way. Fantastic. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll kind of work backwards because what you actually do as a day-to-day job, I think, is absolutely fascinating. And I'd like to, I'd like to, sh- to share that with our listeners as well. Now, what, what I am going to... Yeah, absolutely. What I am going to say now, though, just before you tell us about what Blood Origins is, for our listeners <laughs> who will know that we are running a film festival at the Northern Shooting Show... Uh, We haven't announced any of the films yet, but I can tell them that one of your films for Blood Origins is going to be in the film festival. So that is the very, very first announcement of a film (laughs) at the film festival. So uh, fire away, Robbie, Tell wherever you want to start with this story, tell us about Blood Origins. Well, firstly, I just want to say thank you to you two. Um, You know, uh, I've listened to a a couple of your podcasts, Into the Wilderness, uh, and the, the stuff that you guys are putting out there. You know, when you start looking at the podcasting genre right now, I think the the level has just been ramped up and everybody um, is figuring out what we need to start talking about. And, you know, I'm going to put the Into the Wilderness podcast up alongside, obviously, Adam Yonke's uh, Journal of Mounting Hunting podcast is, is a fantastic resource, but I'm going to put, you know, the... You know, Ben O'Brien with Yeti just dropped the Hunting Collective, which the first four episodes have been just outstanding. The Gritty Bowman is starting to tackle some some really critical topics uh, pertaining to the hunting community itself. Um, it's just, again, I'm just, I say that all to say I'm really humbled to be on with you guys. Uh, love what you do. Love your production company. Love the, the, the videos that you are starting to produce um and uh, again i'm just i'm a complete unknown the project is unknown and you know you just had remy warren on what like, <laughs> remy warren on yeah yeah and you're now talking to me which is just you know blows my mind no well, we're, we're very thank well first of all thank you very much i think we might have to use that for an endorsement I, of the we show might, might do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but no it's a pleasure to have you on and from our point of view you know we just want we want the world uh, the hunting public and the non-hunting public to hear great stories from great people who have a, a great mindset and an ethos and ethics that I think is going to carry uh, the hunting community forward. Uh, yeah, you you name some of those guys. Remy had been on. Don Donny Vincent's been on before. Who was kind of a forerunner for a lot of the the mindset that I think we should be following and the, the stuff that you're you're working on now. And I'm starting to see and read. You know, I th- I think I think your project and, and name is going to be one that you know, people become to recognize and uh, hopefully this podcast is going to help that. Well, I, I, again, just appreciate it. And, uh, you know, you brought up a, a place that we can start as you brought, you, you said, man, blood origins, what a fantastic name. 
And, uh, you know, we didn't actually start with the name Blood Origins. Um, we started with the name In the Blood. And uh, when I started talking and started pitching our pilots around, we are fortunate enough in Mississippi um, to have some very, um, I, I call them originators, the originators in the hunting industry, the guys that are old school, like Cuz Strickland, like Will Primos, that if you look at them today and the, and the time that they spend with young individuals, with kids and, and really translating what hunting is meant to be, not what the industry is portraying today, but what hunting really means to them and what they want to leave as a legacy. They, I was fortunate enough to get my content in front of them and they just gave me some such valuable in, insight. And, and Will was the first one to say, he turned around when he watched my, my pilot and he said, the first thing he said to me, he said, well, one, he said, who, who, who shot this? Who was the production guy? And I said, I've got this guy in, uh, down here in, in Gulfport. He's, his name's Drew Seals from Lazy Lab Productions and just a phenomenal young man who has an absolute eye for, for the camera, but also can translate a vision. And I had a vision of what I wanted. And then the next thing he said to me was, do you own it? Do you own In the Blood? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I do. You put the trademarks in. He goes, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Who else is in this space? And I said, well, there's these other two people. And he said, change now. And we hadn't even started. He said, change now because it's going to stop. You, it's going to reduce the amount of heartbreak that you have in two years' time when you are big and somebody comes and, and, and bumps into your space and is doing something completely against the ethos, as you mentioned, of what you're trying to do. And so we searched long and hard about what the next name should be, and we stumbled across Blood Origins, and it just fits so well with the, 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 the impetus of the project, which is exactly exploring who we are, the origins of our blood, the origins of our heritage, the origins of why we hunt, and really capturing that story. And that's what Blood Origins is. It's just a it's a very simple concept. It's a storytelling documentary platform. And we shoot the stories and we shoot the episodes in a very intimate, connected way. Um, we want somebody to turn on a Blood Origins episode and be riveted to the screen. We don't want you to turn away. We've introduced a little bit of B-roll. We don't introduce a lot of B-roll. And if you notice the way that we film it, we film it from <clears throat> the chest up, i.e. you're going to see very close shots of eyes and mouth and really feel connected to that individual story. And that's what's going to resonate. And that, that the resonating part of, of, of the project is, is simply twofold. One is to tell the non-hunting mainstream American audience or the global audience to that fact, who we are as hunters. We are not just this trophy shot, grip and grin type of, of community. There's so much beyond that. There's so much beyond sort of buried in our DNA about why we hunt and who we are as hunters. And that's what we're trying to capture. Secondly, it's, it's letting that one person watch that one episode to say, wow, I used to hunt. Or wow, my dad used to take me hunting, but I don't hunt anymore. 
or it's like me, a dare I say adult onset hunter, and we'll get into my story and why I'm an adult onset hunter. But I'm, you know, as, as a buddy of mine says, I'm 39, but I'm in my 40th year right now. Um, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm just a, I'm a nascent hunter. I've, I've not experienced anything yet. I want to embody what hunting is. And I want to showcase that to my two young boys. And I want to ensure that they turn into the hunters that I want them to become. And so it's that, that inspirational aspect of the project to say, just if we just change that one individual to become a hunter, to harvest their own meat, to sustainably reap, you know, what, you know, the creators put out there for us, then we've done our job mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll be completely happy and I'll walk away from the project. Uh, it's what I love about the the, kind of the the short films is the intimate nature of it. And you're speaking to, to some of the people that you're speaking to are not necessarily the, the the type of people that you might expect to have a story like that. And, and that's the, the beautiful thing about it is that if you look back far enough, there probably is hunting. Well, there, there most definitely is hunting in your blood, and it, it's funny how that weaves its way through through time and history. Maybe skips generations and then comes back for some sort of reason. But it's in everyone's blood, and that intimate nature and feel of the way that uh, the films have been shot. And I, I do have to co- compliment your your cameraman who you, who you mentioned because it was one of the first things I noticed and Daryl noticed uh, as as a production company ourselves. We, we always got an eye for okay there's some nice camera work there's somebody who knows what they're doing and it does make a tremendous difference when you're trying to tell the stories that you're trying to tell absolutely and you nailed it it's in everyone's blood and i'll take it one step further and say and this is the tagline to the project is everyone has a story and what we're figuring out is and this is what's the sort of beautiful part of this project is that the unknown stories are actually coming across and being picked up probably more than the known stories. So Cuz Strickland, right? Cuz Strickland is very well known in the Southeast for who he is. He's just an amazing person. His episode was just, his episode was amazing. If you haven't watched it, you know, do yourself a favor. Episode three, he just goes into why he is who he is and he's an amazing guy. But that we followed his episode with a lady called Joanna Dart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Korean, the first one I watched. First one I watched was that one. Korean female, you know, 25 years old, has been hunting for two years, was not raised. Her story is incredible, right? Adopted at five from South Korea to a single mother. The mother didn't hunt. Uh, she somehow got her way into a program and um, got taught to hunt. And it sort of buried itself in her blood or awakened something that was in inside of her DNA. And uh, at the time of us filming, she was the learn to hunt coordinator for the state of Ohio. So she had literally taken this thing that was awakened in her two years prior and had turned it into who she was as a person in a career. Well, now she's actually just got hired as the R3 coordinator for the National Wildlife uh, National Wild Turkey Federation for the entire state of Ohio. Tremendous. So it's just amazing. Yeah. Tremendous. Absolutely yeah. crazy. Um, 
what a great so conservation just... tie-in as well. I mean, the Turkey, the, the story of the turkey conservation in North America is one of the great conservation stories. In fact, it's one that we haven't talked about. We were not going to talk about it today, but we've not talked about it on this podcast. But I must make a note to bring it up in the future. Well, I have the guy. When you're ready to talk about it, I have the guy. Oh, brilliant. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and that's what that's to us is, you know, I feel, you know, super privileged when you stand behind that camera and listen to these people's stories that, you know, they've just opened up their hearts to you, sort of an, a no-namer. We just reached out out of the blue saying, hey, here's our project. This is what we're trying to do. Do you mind us telling your story? And then they intimately open up in front of you just like that is just Incredible. so humbling. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. When I saw the well, when I saw the name of the project and started to read a little bit about it and hear you speak about it, it resonated really strongly with us because one of the the little like slogans that we st- we started putting on T-shirts like two years ago um, to help support the podcast where people buying it was "Embrace Your DNA," which is a, a different way Almost of saying the same what thing. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that you're absolutely right. That's it's it's who we are, right? That's the it's just buried inside of us. And, and, you know, from your guys' beginnings in, in, in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, and your family's beginnings to where you are today, you know, similar to my story of where I was, where my, my heritage came from, and, and where we are today, and, and, and the culture and the industry, the position of the culture and the industry today, you know, we have a you know, we have a massive job on our hands and, and hopefully the project is just uh, is one pellet in that shotgun shell that we need to uh, to change the tide, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think that we do for I think everybody involved in it now has a responsibility to try and do something that is going to help reshape how hunting is viewed. And, and a project like yours is, is exactly the kind of thing which in, in a greater or to a greater or lesser extent is going to make a difference. You might not. We might not realize what we might not realize who we touch that it makes a difference to. You might not realize who you touch it makes a difference to. But it definitely, it definitely will. Now, before I get to uh, your background, because that's what we want to get to next. How do people watch this, and what is the format? What's the mm-hmm. the future going to look mm-hmm. like? If you can answer that for for Blood Origins as as a project and a, a sort of a TV yeah. series. So I don't know if we'll ever go into the TV uh, landscape. Uh, right now, we're just working on a digital platform. We drop all of our episodes and stories through Facebook, and you can find us at Blood Origins. We're at Blood Origins across all of our all of our platforms, Great. all of the digital platforms. So YouTube, Blood Origins on YouTube, Blood Origins on Instagram, at Blood Origins on Facebook. And so we're just a digital platform right now. Uh, again, we're just, we're very, very young. We, we dropped the first episode in September, but the momentum, I can feel it already. Like it's starting to build tremendously again, just being on a podcast like yours, I have to pinch myself. Um, but it, it, it's, we don't know where it'll go. We've got, we've got some ideas from a a content streaming perspective. Uh, one of the things that we probably may talk about a little later is that we just came back from Essentially, my first, and, and this is where I, I think there's a very nice tie into the project, given who I am as a hunter, because I'm exploring, again, who I am as a hunter and, and wanting to learn so I become as good a hunter as I possibly can be for my boys. And so we've got, we just came back from a Barbary sheep hunt in New Mexico. That was my first Western hunt ever. 
It was really my first test. And we filmed the entire thing. Oh, and uh, we're, 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 we're couching it completely differently. We're trying to think outside the box to what a hunting film should be. And we're going to call them journeys. Yep. And it's going to be all about the journey in, the journey out, you know, what we experienced on the hunt. And, and you know, the st- uh, I, we were listening to a podcast on the way home, actually, with Aaron Hitchens on the Kafara cast. And Aaron was like, you know, the the brutal weather, the misses, the, you know, the chances not taken, all of that wraps in to make it a better story. And what we experienced, you couldn't have written a better story the way it actually turned out. So stay tuned for that. That's what's coming. So there's plenty of stuff coming. We've got a lot of episodes uh, in the bank. Uh, We're about to film a couple of, um, we've got a lot of episodes lined up as well. So we've got a lot of good content coming. And and again, what we like about it is that you never know what's going to hit next, right? Are you going to see a female next? Are you going to see an African-American next? Are you going to see a veteran next? Are you going to see a very well-known hunting icon next? You just don't know what's going to come. And that's what we like about it. Oh, that is exciting. I'm quite excited to see what your output's going to be from from that hunt because obviously we're we're seeing the blood origins which is a, a, a quite a set format and fairly short uh, but you're absolutely right what you what you say you know the the pulling of the trigger is such a tiny part and it is a hundred percent the the journey that you take uh, and that forms your reason for being there some of our listeners will remember uh, a podcast we did some months back uh, I guess uh, October November last year which was I was in Nepal filming a hunt which i'm just finishing editing right now and that is so much uh, we did some fantastic hunting there but 95 percent of it is about the culture and just being in awe of the landscape that you're in it is about the story but, but not that, really about the hunt that's only happened in fairly recent time again there's been a, a swing about showing less of the hunt and more about everything that goes on because there was a period of time that me and Byron uh, saw ourselves that uh, programs would not show, uh, they wouldn't be produced unless there was a kill shot in it. Uh, The cameramen would not be paid unless there was a kill kill shot in it. And it's entirely their fault for part of the mess that we're in today because Mm -hmm. of programs like that. Where they they mm-hmm. they they will only show the kill shot, um, and and that was an insistence. On it was it, an yeah. insistence of it, and they would slow it down, and and also it's a weird obsession with some people that like to watch the kill shot over and over again because we see it on YouTube stats if you put up a a, a film with a kill shot in it, people do rewatch it over and over again, um, which to an extent is slightly strange. Yeah, I think that. Um this is something that the hunting industry has to tackle head on. And I've noticed it myself. So, and, and you bring up a, a really interesting point. And, and I wrote it actually in a little uh, Insta story. John Dudley even brought it up on, on the Hunting Collective. He said, it's a very weird thing our industry is in. We don't want to make it about killing, yet we do. And it was so poignant the way he said that because when you post, and you guys know this better than anybody, when you post something on Instagram, that is quasi Crip and Grin, your likes and impressions are through the roof. Yet you you post this picture of you leaving this amazing landscape with the sun setting and, and it's this sort of experiential uh, type picture. You don't get half the impressions and half the views. And, and unfortunately, the connectivity between the impressions 
and reach and likes and follows tied to marketing and brands and the industry itself, that connectivity, if, if nobody looks at that connection and figures out a way to rework it, then we're going to be stuck, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, to, I mean, to just talking about your your reach and likes. I'm just. I'm I thought just, you were going to do that. Yeah. I've just scrolled through our Instagram, and there's a picture here of uh, a stag coming off the hill. Don't get me wrong. I, well, I took it, but it is a fantastic picture. If I do say it was so an myself. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what it captures, is amazing. And if you look at the engagement and the the likes and that, you know, over a thousand people uh, have uh, liked it. Uh, the engagement is huge on it, and then. And I put up a picture the following day of uh, some cultural stuff in Nepal, 100 people. <laughs> yeah, like the the difference is night and day between... We uh, see it a lot with... Um, you put a gun in a yeah, picture. Yeah, that's just what I'm going to say. A gu- just a gun for you know whatever reason. I used to review a lot of guns, so we have a lot, a lot of stock photos of guns. And you get huge engagement, which is fine. But then re- really, really important stuff where it, you put up another, like a, a fantastic picture, which is telling the story of some you know, some form of conservation slash hunting initiative. And sometimes it just doesn't have the pool. And I do blame uh, the algorithms partly on social media yeah. for, for that happening. But on the other hand, um, I, I don't understand why you know people evidently follow you yet they're extraordinarily picky on what they engage with and what they like um, on social media. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it changing, though, Robbie, in, in the last couple of years? Have you seen it uh, shifting in the right direction from where you are? Again, we, we are going to get into your, your background, but you're over in the States, so you, you have a slightly different view of it compared sure. to us in the UK, Europe. Sure. I think that the tide is changing. I would, I'm very optimistic that the tide is changing. You just look at the, the types of content that the, the big influencers are putting out there, right? You look at the guys that are the, the, the lead horses in our industry, the John Dudleys, the Adam Greentrees, the Cam Haynes, the Stephen Ranellas, the Remy Warrens, and just, and just scroll through their feed and, and see what they're posting. Those guys are posting exactly what the industry needs right now. You know, it's all about respect. It's all about the experience. It's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, this is who I am as a hunter. It's not, there's a couple of grip and grins in there. And, you know, Ben O'Brien has has really started a very good debate and conversation about that whole trophy shot grip and grin. And I, I truly think that, you know, this is just my own hypothesis here, but we live right now in, I guess, a, a millennial culture of social media. And the millennial culture of, of, of especially hunters in the social media space is they're so young that the grip and grin, the gunshot that you mentioned, um, all those things, that's what they like. If you gave it, and this is the problem, if we give it another 10 years, say, for that bubble of millennials to move into the next space in their in their lifespans which is now they're married now they have kids now they're starting to think a little differently as hunters well i think that that will completely shift the landscape of what they're actually engaging with online the problem though is it's going to take 10 years and what happens in that 10 year span right 
are we still the hunters that we are here in 10 years? I hope we are. I hope that we have strengthened. I hope that we have um, we have built a coalition about who we are and, and really um, have infused back into the generations beneath us uh, and gener- our, our own generations to become hunters that we we're not, you know, in America, we're now 11 million strong. So 4% of the population and hopefully in 10 years time, we're not, you know, 5 million strong and 2% of the population. Hopefully we've, we've held steady and, and gained ground maybe. But to me, that's my own little internal hypothesis is that we have this, the social media following that is a very young crowd that's tied to social media and we just need them just like you and me we've evolved as hunters as we've gotten older and as we've gotten gained in different we've gained responsibilities and we need that 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 crowd to do the same thing yeah it's a fair point actually uh, you forget or, or i forget you know we've both hunted since well, I could walk basically you know you'd be I'd be following following our dad wherever it was going to shoot rabbits and you evolve not just as a hunter but you evolve as a person the stuff that you did mm-hmm. there'll be things that you did out with of uh, sort of hunting circles just in your life that you did as a kid and as a in your very early teens which you would never do now because you grow up you learn you realize you've done some stupid things and, and made mistakes and you that's just life so you, you're right when you say that uh, is that there, is, there there will be this online generation which is from a certain time because when I was 12 years old there was no Facebook <laughs> there was there was no <laughs> there internet was nothing. We, we didn't I don't actually know if we even had dial-up in the house uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know there was certainly mo- no mobile phones or anything like that it makes me sound very old I'm, mm-hmm. only, I'm only 30 but it just shows you how quickly that all well, came I, along I, I only mm-hmm. got a mobile phone when I went to high school and I'm only 27 yeah 26 27 yeah. so it's um yeah, that's an insight i hadn't thought of before robbie but you you probably are quite right there there's certainly going to be an element at play where that generation that is very absorbed in it and very involved in it and is engaging on these platforms needs to uh, evolve as as people just as you get older and as hunters if you're a hunter so maybe this is a good segue into sort of my background so it sort of gives you an idea of who i am today as a hunter uh, as you can tell, I'm from South Africa. Well, maybe you can't tell that I'm from South Africa. We certainly so, can. Uh, from, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm from South Africa, um, sort of uh, raised in a, in a town called Johannesburg, eight and a half million people, uh, no real opportunity to to hunt at all. And, and, and really, why would I even be thinking about or talking about hunting being raised in a, in a town like that? Well, my family is just sort of is steeped in hunting tradition. Hunting heritage is sort of, it runs in my blood. Uh, my grandfather, his name was Leo Kroger. My oldest son is named after him. He was born in a town called Khabarovsk, which is in Siberia, in Russia in 1912. And uh, he sort of went through it all. He went through two world wars, multiple revolutions uh, in, in China. And uh, he sort of at a, at a point in his life was a hunter-gatherer by necessity. He lived on the, in, in Manchuria, northern China. He sort of waxed and waned between northern China and, and Russia and Siberia. Uh, hunted for the pot, went pheasant hunting in Tibet. You name it, this man did it. What he, a life. It was old school hunting. What a life, right? And he told me, well, he didn't actually tell me. I read it in a story of his um, you know, he got to experience two hunting paradises this, that this world had to offer. Uh, the Manchurian steppe, as well as the Siberian tiger. 
And uh, in the 40s, he immigrated back to Germany. He was raised by a Russian mother to a, and a German father. German father died when he was one year old. And again, I've got the beautiful thing about my grandfather was he was a storyteller. And, and I think that's the embodiment of what Blood Origins is, is that he, he wrote down all of his stories, all of his adventures around the world from fishing and hunting. And, um, and I've got a, a number of stories of him, of, of his from that time, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s in northern China, in, in northern Germany. Um, one, of the, one of the funniest stories is that he obviously went through a lot of hard times. You know, he just and experienced a lot of very, very cold winters. And something clicked in the 40s when he got married. He had had two kids. My father and my aunt were born in northern China. He said, I'm done. I am done with the cold. Let me find a place that I can get out of the cold. And, and you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And he got offered a job in then Lorenzo Marks, Mozambique. And he said, that's it. I'm out. I'm going to live the rest of my days in a summer paradise, a hunting paradise. And I won't ever have to deal with wars or anything like that, because that literally was a constant in his life. And so he, again, just think about this, right? In the 50s, he stuck his family on a boat. And three months later, they, they arrived in Lorenzo Marks, Mozambique. And so he lived the heyday of Africa. He lived the heyday yeah. of African hunting for a good 20 years. My father was a teenage boy in those days, and he was the camp boy. And they would go off into the, into the hinterland in the bush for three weeks at a time. My grandfather was a professional hunter for uh, the first hunting concession in Mozambique run by a guy called Werner von Albensleben called Safarilandia. Uh, one of the PHs that you may be familiar with that worked for Safarilandia is a guy called Harry Manners. Yep. You can still buy Harry Manners' book through Safari, uh, Safari Press. And um, my, my grandfather hunted with the names in hunting. He hunted with Fred Bear when Fred Bear was in Mozambique. He hunted with Robert Ruark three or four times. I've got uh, an inscribed book by my grandfather of The Old Man and the Boy. If you've never read The Old Man and the Boy by Robert Ruark, do yourself a favor. It's an amazing book about Southeastern hunting. But what's amazing to me is that my grandfather actually wrote in the front of that book, and, and at the end of the letter, he said, P.S., when you hear about Ruark's camp, that's where Bob, and he called him Bob. Bob came and hunted with us three times, and he wrote the honey badger on the on the porch of one of our hunting camps. Oh, amazing. What a great history. And just amazing history, amazing heritage. And then revolution hit in Mozambique in 74. Yep. Sad. All guns were taken away, just like happened in, in, in Zimbabwe. And um, all hunting was removed. Literally, the, the landscape was uh, raped of, of resources. Uh, and, and conflict. I was born in 78 uh, and raised in South Africa. And essentially, all of the opportunities that were provided to my father <clears throat> as a teenage boy and my grandfather were denied to me. You know, I'll, I'll make a quick tangent. My, grand, my father was here about three months ago and we started getting into some of his old storytelling. And uh, he told me that as a camp boy, and this is a, a teenager, 12, 13 years old. His job every morning was to walk out of camp with one of the camp boys and find a herd of impala, and he would shoot an impala. They would drag it back to camp, and they would gut it, and they would take the fresh liver out of that impala every morning. 
and his job was to slice the liver and grill it for breakfast with onions and garlic and that was the camp breakfast uh-huh. every morning that's not a bad job to have but it might look think about it as a as a 13 year old boy living that lifestyle come on and he probably did it with a tutu hornet which was all the rage <laughs> back then something right yeah. just amazing and um uh, and so, unfortunately, everything that that was, I didn't get. Um, I was raised in an urban environment. Uh, South Africa doesn't have any public hunting grounds. South Africa doesn't have any public licenses. Uh, to even own a weapon in South Africa then <clears throat> was difficult. Now is extremely difficult. Um, and so it's just... I never, and it's it's funny when I think about it, and especially this project is making me think about it. I was like, well, why didn't, why didn't my father or my grandfather talk to me about hunting? Why didn't they tell me about all the stories? You know, I literally just got the stories that were written on a piece of paper and the, and the trophies that were on the wall. I didn't get to sit down and I just can pinch myself today and, and, and just that I could have just sat down with my grandfather night after night after night and just sat there and listened to him. But we didn't. And the reason why was that I think that he had resigned himself to the fact that that time, that opportunity was gone. And why put me through what was versus what is. And, and, what, and what is was that there was nothing available to me. And so... I um I went to school in South Africa like every like every boy in Africa every yeah every boy in South Africa wants to be a game ranger right we we always we want to be policemen we want to be firemen we want to be lawyers just like any other kid around the world but in South Africa and Africa specifically you want to be a game ranger you yeah. want to be that guy that takes people and shows them lions and shows them elephants and whatnot and so it's the hero role being a game ranger there isn't it Exactly. You, yeah. you, you're that cool guy, right? Driving the Land Rover around. And um, I guess that's sort of the, the, if you think there's two things buried inside me, buried in my blood, one is obviously this hunting heritage that's buried inside me, but there's also this conservation restoration ethic bit buried inside me. And so I, I studied um, environmental uh, conservation biology at school. Um, uh, I trained to be a, a wetland ecologist. That's, that's what I do. That's sort of my bread and butter of, of my, my career. And I'll, I'll, again, I'll, I'll be a little tangential here and explain, I think, what that's why I, I have that conservation restoration bent to me or why I do have this conservation restoration bent to me. So we've talked about my father's side of the family in terms of hunting heritage. My grandmother who married Leo, her side of the family actually were the first foresters of the Sachsenwald in northern Germany. So these guys were the first conservationists working for the the German baron at the time, looking after his resource. So the forests at the time were not public. They were owned by the princes. And so these guys were in charge of... um, essentially taking care of the resource and the resource being the timber, the resource being the animals. And so these guys' jobs were, they were hunters as well. So they needed to hunt and provide food for the prince and his staff and and all of his guests. And so I have this sort of, I believe these, these foresters and and who they were and the ethic of, of conservation buried in my blood too. And so that's why I am who I am today in that 
I, I told you I'm a wetland ecologist. I, I was fortunate enough to work on, in Kruger National Park as a master's student for six, six to nine months. And then was very, very fortunate to get an opportunity to come to the States to do a PhD. And so my PhD work was tied with essentially infusing wetland features into agricultural landscapes so that we made sure that the ag that we know that we need to feed a burgeoning global population was efficiently increasing as well as improving the environmental impact and footprint of that, of that agriculture. And so I did that for a couple of years. I was a professor at Mississippi State in the Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Department. And uh, in 2010, um, the BP, uh, actually 2000 and, yeah, 2010, the BP oil spill happened. And um, I think I'm messing up that date. I'm I can't remember the exact date. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was quite a few years back now. Yeah, so the the oil spill happened, and I was fortunate enough, as as everybody knows, it's all about who you know in this world, and I'd met the right people, and um, they were standing up a federal entity that was going to handle the restoration of this oil spill from, from Texas to Florida called the Restore Council. And they hired an executive director, they hired a chief financial officer and a, an assistant executive director. And then they said, we need to hire a chief scientist. And again, just humbled beyond belief in that the guys turned to me and they said, we want you to be the chief scientist of the, the federal council. And so I stood up the restoration framework from Texas to Florida about how we handle the restoration process. And I met the people that was just operating at a completely different level about what I had done. Like I got, don't get me wrong, the work that I was doing was absolutely meaningful, but now I was at a, at a level that was career-defining for a scientist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, oil, that oil spill, I mean, that, that was a disaster. Everyone knows how, how big it was, but in terms of um, what it did to the environment, it was pretty massive. I, I don't think it was actually reported quite as big in this country as it probably was in the States. Absolutely massive. And, you know, the, the biggest, you know, you, some would argue, but I would argue that it was the biggest ecological disaster the planet has, has seen thus far. And so, as a result, we have the largest ecological restoration project that the planet has ever seen. And so it's really important. And there's a lot of eyes looking at you, right, to say, you, you guys better do a, a really good job. And so we made sure that we stood up a framework that was uh, accountable, that was transparent, and that was meaningful to the resource that got impacted as associated with the, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So I did that for, a, for about nine months and uh, was about to transition back to Mississippi State, as a, uh, back to Professor that Mississippi State had actually loaned me out. And the state of Mississippi, a small con- a consulting company approached me and said, you know, what you've done for the Gulf, we want you to do that specifically for the state. And so, again, fortunate enough, uh, got offered a job that was career-defining. And, and now, every day, I work uh, in, in consultation with the state to help put and support implementation of restoration on the ground in Mississippi. And so, as I said, before we even got on here, in, in about an hour I've got about a two-hour discussion that's going to range from uh, marine mammal strandings to sea turtle telemetry to uh, how do we effectively put oysters back in in um, 
back on the ground. <laughs> wow, incredible. I, I'd love to do an entire show actually just on your work within yeah, that because I think that would be fascinating. Absolutely incredible. And actually just talking about what you did uh, after the Deepwater Horizon incident to restore because you set up the framework and I'm assuming the work is still going on now, is it? Yeah, so a lot of people don't know this, but the, the payout for BP is over the next 15 years. Okay. So we've got at least 20 more years of restoration hitting the ground in front of us. And it's amazing. Look, don't get me wrong. This is the 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 the, the, pr- the opportunity that's in front of us, right? A lot of people have said out of catastrophe has come opportunity. And that's exactly what has happened in that you've got even across the Gulf, not just Mississippi, but Mississippi, we're putting in, you know, restoration projects that only you know, in your wildest dreams, you could have put in the ground because of the amount of money that's available. In in Louisiana, for example, you know they're starting to do things like massive river diversion. So a river diversion of the Mississippi River to start pushing sediment back into wetlands that are subsiding because of sea level rise and because of starvation of of, of a lack of sediment being introduced into the system. Now they're they're altering that and putting it back in. Just and and that's a that's a nearly one to, I think it's a $1 billion or $1.3 billion project. Yeah, it's hard to find money Can't for these that. things. <laughs> it it, it, it kind of shows you, though, if, uh, obviously BP being an absolute giant, along with many other large corporations, it shows you that they can still survive, bounce back, and pump all that money in, and have that disaster, and still be around. It kind of shows you maybe these big companies probably should have had an obligation to be spending large amounts of money doing these things anyway <laughs> it's pretty amazing you nailed it yeah. yeah so that's just a short that i know i know it wasn't very short but um there's a lot behind me yeah and, uh, <laughs> but it i guess to put a, a fine point on it that's why we wanted to start the blood origins project is that there are elements to who we are as hunters, the story behind who we are. That story for me is both conservation, restoration of my background, as well as who I am today and what I do, plus the hunting heritage part of, of who I was, uh, sorry, of who my family was, and sort of marrying those two together. And I've got two very young boys, six and four, and it is imperative to me that they become hunters that I want them to become. Um, because it, and, I guess and, you, you feel like if they don't have the opportunity to embody it and embrace it as they, I guess, as they feel fit as they grow older, then there will be a little part of them that will forever be missing. Exactly, exactly. I don't want them to, I don't want to be in a position when they're 18 and they say, dad, why didn't you do this with us? Or I just want them to say, well, you know, dad, you gave it a good go. <laughs> we just don't want to be hunters. Yeah. And that's okay. Also that's going to be okay with me. Yeah, exactly. But you have to, you have to put the opportunities there and, uh, and lay the sort of the groundwork of our own histories. And each one of us has a different history. Uh, like we said at the very start of this podcast, which if you go back far enough, uh, hunting will have been part of it, whether we like it or not. Um, but it is important, and so often these stories are lost. It really pains me if I think back 
when I was younger and you don't you don't think about these things a bit like you were saying earlier about you didn't quite understand why you never you weren't didn't talk every evening with your grandfather about uh, all the hunting stories and it might be a slightly different reason why he didn't have those conversations but even as a young person uh, as you, as you're growing up you don't want to really sit I mean I kind of did to some exactly. extent but you know when you're very young you don't want to come you don't want to sit and listen to the old stories from old people <laughs> you just don't, you don't. No, no one you're does right. but as you get older you will and for we do have a lot of young people who listen to this podcast as well and I can promise you one thing if you don't take the time to listen to those great stories and get it out of you know whoever that might be it might not just be it might not be a relative it might just be an older person that you know who has great hunting related or not hunting related stories if you don't take the time to have the conversations with them eventually it's too late and you will forever regret it no you couldn't you couldn't have said it better i you know it is i probably was the same way if he even had maybe he even offered the opportunity i don't remember right and mm. i just was like ah no how to play with my bmx yeah yeah exactly that, right? right so with your it was with your granddad being um in obviously northern China, well, in China, uh, was he writing in English? Because he wasn't, he w- wouldn't have been a native English speaker. No, he wasn't. He was, uh, so he was just multilingual, right? He he spoke Chinese, he spoke Mandarin, he spoke German, he spoke Russian, and then he obviously spoke Portuguese yeah. when he was in Mozambique, having to learn Portuguese, didn't know Portuguese, and moved his entire family into a Portuguese-speaking colony. Um he wrote all these stories when he was in his 60s and 70s. I think post-revolution, somebody must have sparked an interest in him to say, man, you've done so much. You need to start capturing all these stories. And uh, thankfully, he did. And uh, he got a book published with Safari Press called My Last Kambaku. It only ran a 1,000 prints. And uh, it's a very rare book to find nowadays. It was actually funny. I'll, again, I'll give you a tangential story. I was at the Dallas Safari Club earlier this year. And I ran across a Safari press booth and there's this old bookshelf in the background. And I was like, hey, let me just go have a look to see if my grandfather's books on this bookshelf because it's all full of old books. And lo and behold, there was my grandfather's book. I pulled it out. I couldn't believe it. I've got a copy, but I'd love to have more copies. I pulled out the book. I turned to the guy that was there and I said, man, this is I'm, I'm his grandson. And he goes, you're Leo Kroger's grandson? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He goes, I was the one uh, who negotiated the book with him. And my grandfather's been dead since 2003. So I was like, oh, my gosh, can you tell me a little bit more about it? And he's like, yeah, he even tried to convince us that we needed to publish a fishing book. Now, this is the, this is Safari Press, right? Yeah. And this is, gives you an idea of who my grandfather was. Uh, and he said, yeah, he even told us he would pay us <laughs> to publish a fishing book. <laughs> so... This is the kind of guy that, you know, would have a dinner party over to his house of, of like American ambassadors, Spanish ambassadors in Mozambique. And when he was ready to go to bed, he would get up off the table. He would wind the clock and everybody knew, hey, he was he was going to bed and you could either stay or you could go. It's up to you. <laughs> really? I love that. I love that. Is, so, is, it, is it the kind of, uh, I, I don't even know, I don't know much about remaking books, but I'm assuming you can take books to be get reprinted. reprinted. Somewhere. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll finish the story by saying, and then I turned to the lady who was taking orders and I said, hey, could I get a discount for the book since I'm the grandson? Mm. And, the, and there was this other little lady standing next to her. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, you can get the discount. And she introduced herself and she was the editor-in-chief of Safari Press. And she goes, I was actually the editor-in-chief of that book. 
And again, I was like, whoa, you know, can you tell me a little bit about him? And she goes, well, how would I describe Leo? And I said, eccentric. And she was like, yes, and charming. <laughs> and uh, I, she goes, what I'll do is they, they have these, they keep these, um, they call them dockets of all the, the correspondence that they had with each of the authors to just make sure that, you know, the author doesn't pull a fast one and say, oh, I told you to do this and you actually did the other thing and they can pull out the correspondence. They know you actually told us to do that. Well, it turns out that she went back to the Safari Press uh, dungeon, they call it, and she <laughs> found the docket of her correspondence with my grandfather. That's incredible. And so we're going to get it. But yeah, I'd I'm going to try and explore a little bit with her because the stories are, you know, they range from uh, sort of his the gun dogs in his life to pheasant hunting in China where these guys, you know, followed a utopian uh, fable of this fabled pheasant hunting ground in this way off landscape in China. There was not a pheasant to be found. They barged into this random Chinese house which as I understand it based on the story that if you were a foreigner in China at the time, you could go in and go into anybody's house and they would welcome you. They dropped all their food on the table. They dropped three bottles of vodka, bottles of cognac. This is Christmas Eve. They drank their way into the night. The owner of the house finally came home. The, 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 the husband finally came home, put him on a, on a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, took him back to the trade station. These guys were so drunk that they started trying to shoot the moon out of the sky and started yelling at you know laughing hysterically at one another about how bad a shot they were because the moon wouldn't refuse to fall out of the sky <laughs> you know to a story about uh duck hunting in mozambique where they took a bunch of sailors that had just come into port up to a a beautiful swamp to duck hunt they they got uh interacting with the local villagers and the local brew that the villagers had, had, had procured for that day. And on the way home, on a boat, on the boat ride on the way home, they got upended by a hippopotamus in the river and had to salvage all their gear. Just, you know, crazy stories. Not just hunting, you know, just crazy stories. stories from the 20s through the 90s. Well, Robbie, if, you, if that book ever does get reprinted, put me on the list for the reprint. Absolutely. Because I don't Absolutely. think I'll be able to afford the limited thousand <laughs> copies, but I'll definitely buy a reprint. I love stories like no, that. No, it's incredible. It's, uh, it's incredible. It's just... Just while I'm mindful of it, because I think you would really appreciate it, when you were talking about Mozambique during that time, which was, for anyone who doesn't know the, the history of the revolution there, it was just, uh, it was just terrible for everyone who lived there. What an amazing, amazing country it was pre-revolution, how screwed up it got after. But there's a book uh, written... Uh, called The Last Ivory Hunter. Have you read it, Robbie? I don't believe I have. Okay, well, the, it's The Last Ivory Hunter. It's actually it's a whole heap of interviews that um, Capstick did with a guy called Wally Johnston. So the book is 90% Wally Johnston, word for word what he said, and the Capstick did the interviews. And okay. it's he, he was essentially probably one of the last true ivory hunters going from Mozambique uh, through into um, 
northern Rhodesia as it was then, uh, Zambia now, and he, he basically traversed the entire continent. And the, the very end of that book, which is an incredibly sad part of it, takes part during that that revolution. He, he actually couldn't go home. He wasn't. They wouldn't let him back over the border. He had been hunting in a different country. They wouldn't let him back in. And many, many years later, he went back in and all his stuff was gone because many years had passed. Uh, but it, it is, you, you've given us a, like little snippets of your grandfather's past. So I, I know that you would definitely appreciate the stories of Wally Johnson. There was There's this one section in there where his uh, pickup truck gets stuck somewhere out in the bush because the prop shaft snapped. And to mm-hmm. show you the type of the type of man he was, and I think that there were that period of time just seemed to be men like this when they men and women. So I should correct myself. Would just seem to be <laughs> built tough because he manufactured a prop shaft out of rope and some sticks, essentially, that he managed to fashion out of the bush, while his friend who he was with walked three days back to town because they didn't know whether he would be able to get it out, and eventually wow. they met. But that's in that book, and I know that you would appreciate Incredible. it. For our listeners, The Last Ivory Hunter is a tremendous book from that period of time. Yeah, and I think what you're you're hitting on is, uh, you know, with my grandfather's stories, with, with those stories is, and and you guys are are absolutely you know nailing it in terms of the stuff that you guys are producing is is i think that the element of storytelling that is again a part of who we are as hunters has not has it's not dead but it's definitely missing i think in our landscape in our hunting industry landscape because that's just a whole part of who we are when people think about the hunt as you mentioned you don't think about the two seconds that it took to shoot the animal. What you, th- what you remember is the stories. And you remember, you know, sitting around the fire, talking about the experience, talking, talking about that journey. And, and it's that storytelling aspect that I think we've moved away from. But again, as I said, I think the tide is changing, that we're slowly starting to re-embrace that, that storytelling aspect of who we are. Yeah. And the reason I think it's so important is that without that the storytelling, it is very, very difficult for someone who knows nothing, who, who might have lived their entire life in a city and know nothing of the really the mm-hmm. greater world outside the sub- suburban mm-hmm. element of it, to understand mm-hmm. what's going on and why you do it. How, how can you expect them to if you haven't exactly. actually told a proper story? So yeah, storytelling, I, I hope it is coming back. I see it in, in the written word. Uh, you might have seen the Modern Huntsman, uh, the mm-hmm. guys there, we had them on the podcast. I think in terms of written press, that was the start of the written press changing the way that stories are told. Uh, and people are loving it. I mean, we are selling copies every single day. Yeah, we, we, we're flying we out of our shop. Them here. Uh, and That's if, incredible. If you don't have a copy of it, Robbie, uh, get yourself one. Not from us, because there's no, no point. <laughs> <laughs> get it from them directly in the States. Yeah. Uh, because when you read that, they call it a magazine. It's more of a book at the moment. I think it's been published uh, twice a year. You're reading stories. And a lot of the stories in there, written by hunters and ecologists and whoever else is in there, but just people fascinated with the great outdoors, a lot of those stories, there's no killing in it because they are great mm-hmm. stories that happened while they might happen to have been hunting. But mm-hmm. this, the, the, what made it fascinating was this particular story. And the gun might have not even been shouldered. Uh, but yeah. it doesn't detract anything from it. it. It is a fantastic piece 
of uh, of writing from from start to. I haven't quite finished it yet, so I'm sure it's going to be from start to finish. But the fifty percent that I've read, fantastic, uh, what I've read <laughs> so far, and uh, you would definitely appreciate it because storytelling's at the at the core of it. Well, I think that again, you know, the I'll I'll even point to you know Adams summer his first edition of the Journal of Hunting, uh, Journal Hunting. of Mountain Hunting, his 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 you know. His first print edition did the same thing, right? We're in when that, you, I think. You, I, I think you are. Yeah, I haven't uh, got a copy yet. I need to speak to him. But um, uh, Yeah, you need yeah. to get on to him. <laughs> He's a very, very busy man. I know, I, I know. Um, but, you know, you talk, there's a story in there about Adam's New Zealand hunt where, you know, he chose not to harvest the animal because he that wasn't what he was after. Or, or take that animal. Sorry, that he that he wasn't that wasn't what he was there for. But it was a you know four thousand word piece all about the experience. And again, that's when you take that city that city dweller that's looking at our Instagram feed or looking at our Facebook feed, and the only thing they see is that trophy shot. Then they automatically assume, and they have to because that's all they get of that's who we are as the hunter. And I think, you know, one of the things that you'll start seeing from us in these journeys is that we're going to tell the truth about what goes into this hunt and that you may not even see the trigger being pulled. You may not even see the kill shot. And the reason being is that to us, that is, it is the, it is the finality of the purpose of the hunt. Don't get me wrong. That's the finality of who we are as hunters. But we we do it for so many other reasons that are often lost and so we're going to we're going to strive to really capture that that idea that a hunt to be successful means you have killed robbie I want to wrap this up now because I know that you need to get away. But what I definitely want to, if you've got it to hand, what I would like to hear from you for our listeners is I've heard you read, um, I think it's a paragraph from a letter written by your grandfather or, or, or I can't quite remember now. You, you, do you know what I'm talking about? It's a very a, quite a touching letter about you becoming a hunter. Uh, I do know what you're talking about, but I do not have it with me right now. But if you would hold on two seconds, yeah, we can do um, that. I will, you may have to pause it. No, we, that's okay. The power of editing. We can do it. All right. Uh, so I've got a couple of things, obviously, that my grandfather left me. One is the book itself. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of excerpts out of these things. In the book, the book that we've been talking about, it's called My Last, My Last Kambaku. Kambaku is sort of Shangan as the, as the African dialect in, in Mozambique for elephant. And he inscribed in the book this to Robbie. And this is funny. This is hmm, probably 98 when he did this for me. To Robbie, the future environmentalist who will make it good again notwithstanding the slaughter by his dedushka, dedushka's grandfather in Russian. And it's, it's sort of poignant that he actually wrote it the way he did, right, to who I am today. And I think that at the time when he wrote that, he's obviously retrospectively looking back at what was. It's like, hey, man, could I have done something a little, a little differently? Um, 
but many of those great so hunters. The other are, sorry to interrupt you, Robbie, but uh, many of those no, great no, hunt, many of those great hunters at the time. That's when they reflect back on it. They became the sort of the great conservationists came at the end of their time of uh, many many years of basically finding their way as hunters. There's lots lots of great examples of that. So I suppose your your grandfather wasn't unique in a way, but he he was doing the mm-hmm. same thing that a lot of those great names that we um, associate with the great hunter conservationists of the past did, which was very much reflect mm-hmm. on, on what they had done in the decades that had come before. Mm-hmm. So I'll read you two more things. The one is is what sort of started the project, which is the letter that he typewritten, he sort of typewrote, I wouldn't typewrote, typewritten to me um, in 1992. It's on rice paper. You've seen it in 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 one of, in the first Blood Origins episode, and he opens it by saying, "Dear Robbie, it was indeed a surprise to hear that you are keen to become a hunter. It must be quote unquote in the blood." Uh, and just, I'm glad that you have broached the subject yourself. Otherwise, I might have been accused of leading you astray. Sort of his his comical ways about him, but then. This that that Robert Ruark book that I was talking about, he inscribed this in 1993 to me, and I think this is this sort of sums up who he was and what he really wanted from. I guess I'm going to struggle with this a little bit, but essentially, what he wanted his legacy, his heritage to become. And I think he was seeing at the time a very, very bleak future, a very bleak future for his love, his his absolute passion for hunting and the outdoors because he couldn't see it. He couldn't see the opportunities that he had. And those were gone essentially for his grandson, who was me and my and my and my potential kids. And so this was the letter that he wrote. He said, Dear Robert. And this is him reading the stories of Ruark. I read these stories more than 30 years ago and hoped that I would also have a grandson to whom I could show my beloved bush its incredible abundance of wildlife and teach the boy the things I knew. Still, this would have been possible if the political upheavals had not torn us apart and destroyed the Mozambique I knew. And this is the the, the poignant statement here. One does not bemoan what could have been, but does one's best with what there is. I'm looking forward to our first safari and hope that we shall still have many opportunities of hunting together. That safari never happened. I never got to hunt with my grandfather. I I killed a a pigeon or two or dove with him, but I never really ever got to hunt with him. And now I live in America. I live in Mississippi with two young boys. And the end of that letter in 92, he, uh, <laughs> I might get a little emotional here, but he said, keep this letter in your files. The time might come when you would be able to read it to your grandsons and tell them stories about their great, great grandfather. Hal Spine. Fantastic. Oh, just, just incredible. It, it's so fantastic that you have that history yeah, there to be able to pass on to your kids, and uh, it, great foresight that your grandfather had. But you know, back at that, as he was reflecting on his life, at how important it would be 
to, well, one, document what the past was like, because I think it's very important that we understand how things have been so that we've got something to look forward to into the future to see how we can possibly correct some of the screw-ups that we're making um, as humanity. But it's one of those things that I've always been, you know, as I've grown older, incredibly worried about, is that I hope that I haven't seen the last of the sort of great uh, hunting opportunities around the world. I, I've been very fortunate to experience a, even a lot of great stuff in Africa in, in the last decade. And I know that it, it's not even close to what it was like in your grandfather's days. And I just hope that when another three decades passed, that it still exists in some form and hopefully in a better form than it does today. I mean, there's there's some serious, serious problems and struggles going on with regard to, to wildlife and its management and, and mm-hmm. the explosion of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will, I'll, I'll, since we're wrapping this up, I'll, I'll leave you and I'll leave your audience with, with one thing about the project. You know, the project is not about me, Robbie Kroger. And I think that's what I love about the project. The project is about us. The project's about us, the hunting community, and about telling everyone else's stories. I could care less. You know, yeah, my story is the impetus behind the project, but that's that's where it stops. This is about us as a community and showcasing that 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 us. And I think that that's what's resonating, and I love it, and I can't wait. I can't wait to tell your guys' stories because – you two together, I can just already see it. It's going to be an amazing story. <laughs> we'd lo- we'd to love to host you over here. I can't wait to get to the UK because the stories there of old school gamekeepers, you've got some very uh, cool young females that are in the hunting industry like uh, Jenna Gearing and you know Rachel Carey. And yep, yep. Just got, I, I just can't wait. I, I, it's going to be so cool. And plus having a bunch of British accents on, on the episodes will be <laughs> I found I found the stalker for you, the old stalker, uh, because we're going to have him on the podcast soon. He actually lives oh, very very close to us. His name's Hamish, and he was he was he's seventy, so maybe late seventies now, and he was personal friends with A. A. Gill, who was the, oh. the the great writer who died last I think last year or the year before, uh, who was also a hunter, and he knew him before he was a hunter. And I was speaking, I've known him for years, and I just happened to be in his house the other night when I was speaking, and I, I meant to be there for five minutes to ask him a question, and I was there for an hour, and he was showing me some of the old pictures from back in uh, the 1880s of, of oh, the, the gamekeepers up in the hill there, and he was explaining how things would have changed, and then you know, drinking whiskey with uh, A.A. Gill, and I was like... Hamish, oh. you're coming on the podcast, so I can. I'll, Amazing! Yeah, he is the man for that. He's fantastic. You don't have to go far to find characters in this no. neck of the woods. No. <laughs> uh, Robbie, it has been tremendous to have you on today. I, I genuinely do want to do another podcast at some point in the future to talk about your sort of day to day work and the oil spill. It's not hunting related, but this podcast isn't just hunting. We're hunting, fishing, great outdoors wildlife conservation that's what we love so i think that that's a perfect fit so if you can spare us some time in the coming months we'd love to talk about your work and and what's happened there 
I think people Anytime. people would be particularly interested to find out what what's look going into the future of obviously restoring all these these places that were mm-hmm. destroyed, uh, but also what the challenges that you faced in the very early days, which I I imagine was probably quite must be mind blowing. Yeah, to how get, you're going to to get your head around. I mean, off the top of your head, how many miles of coast was affected? Well, and wetlands, I guess. Oh my gosh, I can't give you a number because I'll be lying. <laughs> you just think about how convoluted Louisiana yes. is yeah, guess, and all yeah. the wetlands. It's just. Yeah. It must, we'll it must we'll be thousands of miles. It must yeah, be thousands, thousands. Maybe tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of miles. Hundreds. Yep. But we'll, we'll talk about that on, on another show. But we encourage everybody to go and check out uh, Blood Origins on all of your platforms and go on to YouTube and, and watch them. And if they like your Facebook page, then hopefully it comes up in your feed so you can see them as you're releasing them. Uh, yeah absolutely it's been a fantastic conversation today i am very much looking forward to hopefully meeting you in person at some point in the future yes sir robbie well, just thank-, thank you i'm just so humbled no. uh, again absolute pleasure the pleasure is all ours and that is it for another two weeks don't forget that you can listen to the show on loads of platforms it is on soundcloud stitcher youtube acast podbean uh, I can't even remember them all now. It's getting it's the list. Oh, Spotify. Spotify is the big, big one now. So actually, next to iTunes, Spotify is the second largest streaming for podcasts on the planet. And it's done that in about three months. So uh, Spotify. They did have a lot of people listening to it to begin with. It, it, had, a, it had a head start. Uh, but yeah, no, Spotify, I mean, we I actually now consume a lot of my podcasts through Spotify because um, it works with my Sonos system in that house. So, yeah, it's pretty good. And if you are a YouTube listener and you're trying to make this more portable, then those are the ways that you can listen to it. It is also on YouTube for anyone else. There's 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 actually a surprising number of people who do listen to it on YouTube. So if you're just a YouTube listener, thank you. But you can be more portable. We we only put it on YouTube because there's like a an automatic upload to YouTube uh, because we don't at this current moment in time, but it is changing in the future is that we just do not have the time to do videos of every single one uh, and then edit it afterwards because it takes so much time. Uh, but we're, we're going to come up with a system where we can, we're going to come up with a system where we can do it in the future so that the YouTube people, um, there's something a bit more exciting going on uh, for you. Uh, but it is a, an audio show after all. Um, so uh, if you want to find out some more information about us, go to all the W's, thepacebrothers.com, uh, where you'll find our shop and there's some really cool stuff to get, which is including our coffees uh, and our T-shirts and our car stickers and the car stickers. Uh, we're going to be running competitions very, very soon with the car stickers, so get yours now. And then if we spot them out about, then there'll be some really cool prizes coming your way. Um, they're one pound... 40, I think, and then it's like 50p postage yeah. uh, for the car stickers. And uh, the coffee as well, they're um, each assigned with a charity, so you'll be doing your bit if you purchase uh, a coffee. And, well, we like it, otherwise we wouldn't sell it. We spent quite a lot of time selecting the right coffee for us to, to actually package up like this for for our followers and listeners and to, to assign to the charities. But it must be good because quite a number of people have come back for we, we've had many, a, many orders. So. Many reorders of the coffee, uh, which is... Uh, and you know what? We've actually... It's one of those, those strange things in, in your office. Obviously, you've got all this coffee. And um, 
you're kind of like, oh, I don't really want to open all my my stock and use it in the coffee. <laughs> I did open a new one uh, while you were but, away. But we we have actually been drinking it because it is the best tasting coffee yeah. in the office. We had a whole heap of stuff that was there for samples and all bits and yeah. pieces, and we were trying to basically get rid of it. And we were making blends and 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 drinking that in the weeks before, and it some really, of them were disgusting. It really sucked. <laughs> yeah, it really. Did but now suck. we're on to the good it stuff, <laughs> which is our stuff. So. Definitely go and check that out because it's uh, it helps us, but it also supports great causes as well. Oh, uh, I was going to say, um, I don't know if you've checked it out or um, you might not have. All the people that donated for the um, to help with the Lawaru, yeah, yep. sanctuary, um, they sent us a message on it's on Facebook and on Instagram uh, saying thank you, like a personal message to us with loads of <laughs> babies crawling Baby all over the place, um, saying a massive thank you. And we are going to look to basically do another round of funding later this year uh, because we want to do the same again. There's no point doing it once. We might no. as well. So your money got there. Your money and 100% you can got see there. in that video where your money went because they just recently saved um, a couple of new baby children. I think it was like 10. Oh, it's just it's heartbreaking to watch. But go, go if you, especially if you donated some money, go and find that video on Facebook or Instagram because it's a, it's a thank you to everybody. It was, uh, it was almost $1,000 that we we raised in like, like it was barely no time at all. Mm. Uh, and that was basically from all of our listeners on here. And uh, that money has made a massive difference. And our goal at the time was to raise, I think, 650. Um, and that was enough to feed and house and look after one chimpanzee for for the entire year. That was the idea, but obviously the money can be used for other things, which it has, because it's been, I think, used to rescue these new uh, new babies, which become big. And the, the whole idea of these things is they, unfortunately, these, these babies are quite psychologically damaged and they because they've been ripped away from their dead mothers they re- normally they rehabilitate them and the whole goal is to release these back into the wild or to have as wild life as possible uh because the bottom line is they're wild animals and they need to go back to where they came mm. uh so you, could, you can't really ask for much more than that no it was a, a great call so go and check that out we're gonna have to run uh you will hear from us it, in fact the next show might very well go out a bit early because we're going yeah. to be we're going to be away as we said at the very start so you might be very you might be hearing from us in about a week